Church, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. If you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. Hear, church, God's word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the, ring, the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Exodus chapter 32 is a well-known passage in Scripture. Uh, it documents what might be considered the greatest crisis in the history of Israel. So significant is this event that the nation itself could have ended right then and there. It is this incident of the golden calf. If you've been a Christian for some time, you know how the story goes. God has already rescued Israel out of Egypt. Ten plagues, ten plagues so remarkable that the nation of Egypt had to emancipate their slaves, their workforce, millions of their workforce to let them go. Israel is led by a pillar of fire. They cross the Red Sea on dry ground and they're rescued from enemies. They're given manna from heaven. And even more, they are given the Ten Commandments. Life with God, this is what it was going to be like. These were the family rules, household rules. And God makes a covenant with Israel almost as if He's saying, I am married to you. You are my people, and I am your God. Marriage. And immediately, what do they do? They worship a golden calf. It's tempting to look at Israel's lapse into paganism and feel a, a bit patronizing to kind of cluck our tongues a little bit. And to think, those poor primitives, 
They didn't even know. I mean, what were they doing? They didn't even worship a great sculpture. They worshiped the sculpture of a calf. How foolish and silly can these primitives be? God has displayed his glory time and time again, and now they turn to worship a cow. And in some ways, we are meant to feel a little bit of that. But that would miss the point of the passage. Actually, the main idea of the passage is not found here in Exodus. The main idea of the passage can be found in 1 Corinthians 10. So turn there in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to look at this passage for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That's found in the New Testament. You can get past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, and Romans, and you're right there at 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verses 1 through 5, this is Paul writing. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul right now in these opening verses are just establishing that we as Christians have a kind of family relationship with these Israelites. We can learn from them. And what do we have to learn from them? Verse 6. Now these things took place, all that stuff that happened for Israel in Exodus, as examples for us that, here's purpose, we might not desire evil as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now skip down to verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Verse 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Do you follow the argument that Paul is making? Paul is saying here, he's relating to these Corinthians and by extension to us, that these Old Testament stories, that, these, that this history that we learn about Israel is for us. He draws attention in verses 6 and 7 to the incident of the golden calf. And there may be many things that we can say about Exodus chapter 32, but Paul wants to draw your attention, and I want to draw your attention to this. Don't desire evil, as it says in verse 6, as they did. There are examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Take heed lest you fall. You know, one of the surest ways to fall into temptation is to think that you're not going to. It's to be overconfident. It's to have a swagger in your sanctification. 
And when we come to a passage, if you turn back to Exodus 32, like ours this morning, you might be tempted to look down on these Israelites and you think, I would never do something so absurd, so illogical. The history of the golden calf is not helpful. And you might have heard that expression, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. Well, this is what the Apostle Paul is telling us. When it comes to the history of, the, of Israel and the golden calf, they are spiritual lessons for us to avoid. And perhaps the very first lesson that we should remember as we get to Exodus chapter 32 is that you are the Israelites. You are the Israelites. Take heed lest you fall. Exodus chapter 32 shows in vivid colors how evil, evil can be. The exceeding sinfulness of sin, as Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, would say. And we are to look upon Israel's sin, to see its character, to understand the anatomy almost of sin, and not to desire evil as they did. And this morning I just want to point to you point out to you three features of sin from Exodus 32. Three features of sin from Exodus 32. Number one, first, sin disobeys the word of God. Sin disobeys the word of God. Uh, this whole sordid episode with the golden calf is blatant disobedience to the word of God. And that is what sin is. It is simply disobedience. 1 John 3, 4 says, sin is a lawlessness. Now, it's important to remember as we get to chapter 32 that the Israelites already knew the Ten Commandments. Back in chapter 20, God revealed his law to Moses, and he told them about it. It said in chapter 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So, Moses meet and, and the rest of the elders and Israel meet God at Mount Sinai. He, God tells Moses the Ten Commandments, and then Moses says, Moses goes up the mountain to meet further with God. So the Israelites knew God's law. And it's worth your time as we look at Exodus 32 to ask yourself, which... Ten commandments did they break? Which of the Ten Commandments did they break? Well, at least half of them. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And what did they say right in verse 1? They say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. And they violated the second commandment. The second commandment says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then we read in verse 4 of Exodus 32, Aaron fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. You know, they thought they could worship God any which way they pleased. 
that God would be happy with them, that they were at least trying to worship him as if God were sitting in heaven desperate for human attention and worship and saying, well, as long as you mean well, as long as you are sincere, that is good enough for me. I don't care how you worship me, and yet it's nothing could be further from the truth. Verse 5, Aaron says, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And we see that word Lord there in all caps, meaning he is using the covenantal name Yahweh. They may have said it was a feast to the Lord, but God didn't recognize himself in this cow statue regardless of their intentions. He looked down and said, this is an abomination. They also broke the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain because we see in verse 4 they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In verse 4. They declare that this statue formed of molten metal to be their gods. I mean, how much more egregious can you be to take God's name in vain by saying, look at that thing that I've just made. That's your God. That's God. That's Yahweh. There is the Lord. Aaron himself participated in baptizing their blasphemy, so to speak. I mean, they're kind, he's kind of pressured into it a little bit. He caves right away. You know, it says the people gathered themselves together around Aaron. It could be translated as they, the people ganged up on him, but he was ready to go. They broke the fourth commandment. They did not remember the Sabbath or keep it holy. They broke the seventh commandment. Look at verse 6. It says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, that might sound innocent enough. But the word play in Hebrew can have sexual overtones. Later in verse 25, if you skip down, it says Aaron had let them break loose, indicating that the Israelites were not simply going around throwing the frisbee and playing spike ball when they rose up to play. Likely it meant that they had collapsed into the kind of drunken orgies that characterized paganism in those days. So at least commandments one, two, three, four, and seven, if not more. I don't know if they're bearing false witness here to one another. And what makes the Israelites' disobedience all the more striking is not only that they are doing what God told them not to do, but that they are doing what they told God they wouldn't do. You know, Moses explained God's law in Exodus chapter 24. And I don't know if you remember this, if you've been with us during that time, but in Exodus 24, he explains the law to them, and what did they say? What did the people say? They said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses reads again the law to the people in a couple of verses later, and they say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Two times they said, we will obey the Lord. Nothing subtle here when it comes to this golden calf incident. There's nothing subtle or covert about this whole affair. This whole thing is direct, blatant, plain old disobedience. We have all sorts of questions as we come to verses 1 through 6. Right? You probably have questions, the same as I had questions as you're examining the text. You're wondering, oh, what, you know, what was the cause? What was behind their sin? What's going on with their sin? Like, you know, maybe 
perhaps they were feeling very insecure. I mean, they did come from a history of slavery, and they just wanted some security in their lives. You know, maybe they went back to, you know, something they were more comfortable with. You know, in Egypt, there's this god called Apis, A-P-I-S, and he is a bull. And so maybe they're thinking, I just, you know, that's what we're comfortable with. Let's go back to that. Maybe they were scared because they were saying, oh, Moses, he's been up there for 40 days. I mean, that's like a month. Was Aaron just a bad leader? But I think those questions would miss the point. This was disobedience from the people of God, plain and simple. And this is important for us to remember because I think we often need to reach the point where we face our own hearts and our idols honestly. We can analyze, we can understand our history, the way we grew up, how we were parented. We can assess triggers and reasons that cause us to be angry with our spouse, to pursue money above all things, to return to that habitual sin. But after all the analysis is said and done and all the excuses are offered, the bottom line is that God has said one thing and we said no. Sin is downright, straightforward, old-fashioned disobedience. Sin disobeys the word of God, and second, sin distorts the truth of God. The golden calf is, at its core, a repudiation of God as God. In Exodus 20, when God is about to lay out the Ten Commandments, how does he begin? He begins right before the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God says, I'm not a cow. I'm a jealous God. I'm an invisible God. I delivered you out of Egypt. Now what do the people say? Look at verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You see, sin is certainly law-breaking. Sin is certainly disobedience. But even more, it's a repudiation of the lawgiver. It's about the person. Sin says, I don't like the law and character of God. I don't like God as God. I will fashion, therefore, my own God. God has already made his name known to Israel. He's a redeemer, a provider, a protector. He's all those things. He's demonstrated that to them. Yet they say, that's not what I want. I want something I can see and touch. So they build a golden calf, something small, while God is immense. Something physical while God is spirit. Something location-bound while God is everywhere. They created something that's blind, deaf, and mute while God is uncreated, sees, hears, and speaks. You know, there's a story I heard recently of a boy in art class painting a picture. And uh, the teacher goes behind him, looks at what he's painting, and says, what are you painting there? And the boy says, I'm painting a picture of God. And the teacher says, well, that's silly. No one knows what God looks like. And the boy responds, they will know when I finish painting. But that's what Aaron and the Israelites do, don't they? They make up in their own imagination a picture of God. And as far as Aaron is concerned, this God is thoroughly orthodox. It's Yahweh. 
And you have to understand the attraction of the golden calf. They could see it and touch it and bow down to it. It was like, and it was like the gods around them. It was like everything that surrounded them, right? Because in Egypt, there's Apis, the bull god. And in Canaan, the land they're going to, there's Baal, another bull god. R.C. Sproul comments, the cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent, but at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. This is a God of Israel's own choosing, of Israel's own design. And isn't it the same way for our world today? Isn't it the same with us today? You know, I like to think of God like this. And we go on to describe him as we imagine him to be because we want to distort God. Oh, my God, he would never send anyone to hell. My God would never say this about men's and women's roles. My God would never say this about being lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender. And I know this sounds arrogant, but if that's the God you believe in, it's simply a God of your theological, theological imagination. He is not the God of the Bible. He is not the true God. And you might say, come on. We've got a right to our religious opinions, don't we? Nonsense. You don't have a right to your religious opinions. That's the sin of the second commandment. You can't make God to your personal taste. Christianity is a revealed religion. Not a, not a human speculation, but a divine declaration. Jesus Christ himself submitted completely to the scripture, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, I follow the scriptures as well. So I may not do with my body what God states to be wrong. I may not believe with my mind what God states to be false, and I can no more choose my own religious opinions than I can my own morals. My conscience is bound to the God of the, world as, uh, of the word as he has revealed himself. I mean, how can we possibly try to define what the creator of the universe is? In, in August 1977, NASA launched Voyager 2. It was a space probe to study the outer planets. From what I understand from my reading, it's traveling at 35,000 miles per hour. And in 1989, this probe left Neptune the last planet, I think. Then it left our solar system, and it will take about 950,000 years to reach any other star in our galaxy. And in our galaxy, there are 100 million stars like our sun. And our galaxy is one of 100 million galaxies. And here, Aaron tries to depict the creator of the world as a golden calf. It sounds ridiculous because it is ridiculous. We cannot imagine what God is like unless he reveals it to us. But sin distorts the truth of God. And Paul writes it this way in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became foolish, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This is the great distortion of God in sin. So sin disobeys the word of God and sin distorts the truth of God. And third and finally, sin discards the blessings of God. Sin discards the blessings of God. The Israelites should have been enjoying the fruits of their covenant relationship with God. Again, I'm referring back to Exodus 24, how the covenant was established. There was a great ceremony. If you were remembering anything from Exodus 24, it seems so long ago. But a covenant was established between God and his people. Moses then was called to go further up into the mountain. And Moses turns around and says to the elders, stay here. I will return. I will come back. You have Aaron here for any disputes you might have. Now, just a few weeks later, God's people are violating their covenant obligations. And it's even worse than we think. Twice in the book of Exodus, we have a record of God, God's people, gathering in some formal ways for eating and drinking. One of, once at the conclusion of the covenant ceremony in Exodus 24, it says, Israel offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings to the Lord. It says, they beheld God and ate and drank. There was a fellowship meal together with God. But where is the second occasion? Right here in Exodus 32, verse 6. The people offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It's an abomination. They're twisting and perverting this sacramental, covenantal meal that they had with God, and they enjoyed with God, and then now they're having it with their so-called God, the golden calf. Many commentators have likened this to, to going out and having an affair on the night of your honeymoon. The ink is barely dry on their wedding certificate and they're already breaking covenant. How could they do such a thing after all they've been through with God? They had witnessed the plagues that God had sent against the Egyptians for worshiping false gods. They had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They had conquered their enemies through power and prayer. They had eaten manna in the wilderness, drank from the, from the, from, from the rock. They had seen God's glory on the mountain. They had seen the signs. They had witnessed the wonders but they forgot everything that God had ever done for them, and they are now worshiping a God, a, a God that cannot even move, a cow that can't even move. They're worshiping something that they wore yesterday and are going to drink tomorrow. All of their sins seem so senseless and so absurd. And we even think about Aaron giving into these demands, and we wonder, that seems just so senseless what he is doing. And it is senseless, it is absurd. 
Because sin is senseless and sin is absurd. Even the psalmist in Psalm 106 is astonished at Israel's spiritual amnesia. Psalm 106 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, verse 7, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. That's the problem. These Israelites discard the blessings. They don't remember. And then Psalm 106, verse 13, it says, but they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. And verse 19 of Psalm 106 says, they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Sin simply discards the goodness of God. Look at these Israelites who literally discard the gold that is in their ears for this God. Where do they have gold? Why do they have gold? They're slaves. They don't have gold. They got it because God gave them that gold when they plundered Egypt and left Egypt. A few months ago, they had nothing. The very gold in their ears was a symbol of all they had forgotten, and they risked everything to make an idol. And we think it's so absurd. How can you forget the blessings of God? And that is exactly what the Holy Spirit wants you to say and what the Holy Spirit wants you to think and then to look at yourself. When you see other people sin, you might say, oh, how can you do that? Why would you do that? It's so foolish. We want to tell other people, false gods never fail to fail. And then we look to ourselves and remember, that's me every time I sin. Every time I sin, I disobey the word of God. Every time I sin, I distort the truth of God. And every time I sin, I discard the blessings of God. This is what we do when we sin. We trade our birthright for a mess of pottage. We go out and we hew for us broken cisterns looking for water. And we hew out for us these broken sisters, the cisterns that can hold no water. We forget. We forget these stories in the Bible. We forget our stories. We forget that God has given us life in this world. We forget all the times we've come with sin and we've come before God and he has forgiven us. We forget every time that we've prayed and God has answered our prayers. But even more, we forget the treasure of God himself. Isn't that the very bottom of our sinning? We discard the beauty of God, the greatness of God, the wisdom of God, the faithfulness of God, the joy of walking in step with God. We discard all those things. Let us not desire evil as the Israelites did. Let us take heed lest we fall. 
you're not a Christian this morning, I'm thankful that you're here at our church. I hope that this church can be a place where you can explore Christianity more. But I also hope that by now you're beginning to see that sin is real. I hope you're beginning to see that there is a sinfulness with sin. Perhaps the word has been a mirror to you this morning and you're beginning to grasp more than just I sin, but I'm a sinner. Even from our passage this morning, we see that sin is not just a matter of counting beans. It's not a matter of how many did right and how many did wrong. Sin is our preference for anything but God. Sin is our disapproval of God. Sin is our exchange of his glory for substitutes. Sin is our heart's hostility towards God. It is who we are at the bottom of our hearts. This indwelling sin. It is not enough to know what God says. The Israelites knew and it did not save them. They had the law. But they did not worship God appropriately. The problem was they needed Jesus and you need Jesus. His perfect life and his death on the cross, his resurrection on the third day, his paying the penalty of our sins so that we can be set free from any sacred cows or golden idols. And if you will turn from your ways, and trust in Christ, you will be saved. You'll be saved not to a life of perfection, but in place of disobedience and distortion and discarding of God is a life that admires God, that follows God, that is joyful in God and trusts God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your word. And it is a brief word, but it is a word that exposes the mischief of sin and the sinfulness of sin. And how sin is ultimately this disregard of you, this discarding of you. Oh, Lord, we know that forgiveness is available in Christ. We know that there is joy to be had. And, Father, we pray that we would know that joy fully. We would look upon Christ who died for these sins, that we might sin no more. And so, God, we ask that you would give us strength for today to live a life that honors you, that we would put away, that we would mortify and kill our sins by the strength that your spirit provides. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.